All right, Yus, how's it going? Yeah, good, thanks. I'm back in the attic. The sun is shining. Spring has sprung. I've got my spring has sprung gums on as well. Very colour coordinated. I'm looking fly. Oh my God, ladies and gents, he is looking... Wait, that's weird for me. <laughs> he's looking... <laughs> he's looking... He's looking all right. He's looking all right. I've got my sunnies on today. I'm feeling it. You're feeling it. You're feeling lit. You know what? I've got the colour cords on. I'm looking good, all right? Even though, yeah, I am trapped in the attic. I'm not out seeing people, but that's fine. Whatever. Whatever. Also, feeling a bit... I've got kind of this, like, nagging thing that I feel like I want to get it off my chest I want to you know just speak on it please this is the place to do it go on all right is this a safe space safe space all right so I don't know I feel like I want to get it out but it might be a bit of a ramble so hopefully I'll try and be as concise as possible but bear with me okay go for it we're here for you all right thank you I appreciate that So, so obviously this race report came out this week okay it's piping hot content I want to give my two cents on it And the conclusion was, to sort of summarize, paraphrase, that institutional racism is not a big deal in the UK. And actually, the UK should be seen as a shining beacon of an example to to other countries. And I found that shocking, frustrating, but ultimately not surprising. It's denying the lived existence of of millions of people across this country. It's a massive rug pull under the feet of people that live this inherent racism day to day, whether it's applying for jobs, whether it's getting expelled from school, whether it's being stopped and searched in the streets, people face this every day. And the government, all the way from the top, bearing in mind we have a prime minister who called black people pickaninnies and described their watermelon smiles. He commissioned this report to a guy called Tony Sewell, I think his name is pronounced. And he actually said previously to this report that the evidence for institutional racism was flimsy. So that kind of gives you an idea of where he stands on this. Now, we always have to look at the author when you look at the writing. And this guy's effectively cherry picking these points to confirm his own bias, to prove his own points. And that's exactly what we've seen here. It's kind of insult, deeply insulting to so many people who have actually lived this racism. It's gaslighting on an industrial scale. That's what it is. But ultimately, it's not surprising because this is what the UK does when you look through history, when you look at partition, when you look at the British run and operated concentration camps. In the Boer War, the UK government destroyed mountains of evidence because of the crimes that they were committing. What the British always do is sweep things under the rug and say, actually, we're the best amongst us. And it happens time and time again, and it's just beyond frustrating. Now, to bring this back to the music industry, because obviously this is a podcast about the music industry, it's not a podcast about politics, but these things often aren't so black and white. The lines do get blurred between those two. I'm going to use two examples in the British music industry. And that is when you look at drum and bass and when you look at house, drum and bass started in this country in the 1990s and it was started by black marginalized people, working class people. And when you look at a video footage of drum and bass raves from the 1990s, you see black people on stage and you see black people in the crowd. And the vibe looked absolutely insane, by the way. But when you look at a drum and bass lineup today, and when you look at a drum and bass crowd today, okay, so we have the forefathers who are still doing things in the scene you've got your ray keeps fabio groove rider randall and then you've got the mcs like skibbity gq but if these forefathers weren't still gigging not earning huge amounts by the way compared to their white counterparts if these forefathers stopped gigging the lineups would be 99 percent 
white and the crowds are 99% white. And I think that's so sad. We have ethnic groups that are the originators of a scene. And the second it becomes more mainstream and profitable, these people are moved to the sides and the scene then becomes dominated by white Britain. And I think that needs to change. To give some credit to drum and bass, I will say this. Over the last year, there has been a significant rise of female DJs. They've been absolutely smashing it during lockdown with their live streams. And now we are seeing people push a lot more female talent on lineups. And that is really, really good to see. But there is so much more that needs to be done when it comes to race in drum and bass. And that goes with house as well. House was started in the 80s by black working class people in Detroit, Chicago and New York. And it was played in gay clubs. Like you cannot get more marginalized than that. But now when you go to a house rave or you look at a house lineup, especially with your Salados and your Camel Fats, it is 99.99999% white. Like, I refuse to believe that there isn't young black female talent in house and in drum and bass, but I'm not seeing those people represented on the lineups. And that is so frustrating given everything that's happened in the last year. I'm not asking promoters to solve racism. What I'm asking them to do is to book more diverse lineups. And that means more South Asian people. That means more black people. It means more trans people. And it means more females. We are sick of seeing straight white men on lineups. It is boring. And there's no excuses for it anymore. And I think what ties all this together is that the term whitewash has been used for this report. It's quite an appropriate term in a lot of senses. And also to bring this back to music, drum and bass has been whitewashed, house has been whitewashed. The narrative now has changed so much that you can find people on Twitter that will argue with you when you say that jungle drum and bass is black music or house is black music. They will argue with you because the narrative and the landscape has changed so much that they genuinely believe that these genres aren't black music. So it's a whitewash and that's what the report is and that's what the music industry is and i think that needs to change and it starts with promoters promoters need to do so much more in booking diverse lineups moving forward and that is my mic drop moment you surf i mean if that didn't wake you all up i don't know what will um <laughs> sorry i really just lost myself in the moment um hopefully i didn't bore anyone Nat, Yusuf, seriously, you gave your two pence and we all appreciated it. Like with that report coming out, it's, it makes everyone feel, anyone who is not white, I'm sure, makes you just feel so unseen. And it's why my favorite ever quote is, objectivity is white male subjectivity. And it's so right. That's the constantly the view that the world looks at things. Whatever is objective is just what that one specific person thinks is subjective. And we're tired of it. We're so tired of it. It's why we decided to kind of start this podcast. That was what we were seeing for so long as well. And we just had to stop one day and look at ourselves and be like, hang on, why don't we know anything about South Asian people in the industry? This is a joke. We need to get off our own back and learn more about this. And it's very relevant. And I think it's so important what you said. It's how most, it's how a lot of us feel. And if you don't feel it, this is why you should also be listening to this different perspectives damn straight damn straight different perspectives shaking out my two pence like salt bay on the beat hopefully it's reached a few of you and if you feel triggered by listening to that then maybe you're part of the problem so there's a little bit of perspective for you bro now that was too aggressive <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. We'll probably cut that bit. But no, you make a you make a lot of sense, and I'm glad you said it. And I hope it's all. It's I hope it's got us all riled up and ready to listen to the rest of this podcast. Well, yeah. I mean, it kind of follows on quite nicely because on this episode we are speaking particularly about a marginalised group in the UK who forged their own scene in the UK music industry. We are talking about daytimers, lol. Daytimers, lol. So I briefly mentioned in my rant about other underground club scenes. There's so many that are so important to so many different people for so many different reasons. You can look at the Hacienda in Manchester, which kind of sparked a revolution up and down the country for so many different reasons. You know, there's Studio 54 in New York, Paradise Garage, The Loft, which were all so important to gay clubbing culture. And something that is very overlooked, I think, in this country are the daytimers events, which happened in the 80s and 90s. So, Sophia, do you want to just sum up for us what a daytimer was? Until recently, I didn't even know what a daytimer was. But from the mid 80s to the mid 90s, there were these huge events taking place every Wednesday afternoon where school kids, okay, like aged 18 to 19, every Wednesday afternoon, they'd tell their parents they're at the library. Where would they go? They'd get coaches and go to these huge underground events where there'd be DJs, musicians, and they all took place in the middle of the afternoon because they weren't allowed to leave the house at night. Yeah, they had to be home for dinner which is still something that i is ingrained in me the other Mate, we relate to that we relate to that uh, however many years later 40 years later the other day i was out past seven o'clock and i was anxious as hell i was checking my phone and i was like <laughs> it got to about half seven i was like guys i've got to go oh my god i would get so nervous I would literally like sprint up the hill. We live on quite a steep hill. I would be sprinting up and I'd be like shakily putting my key in the door and be like, oh my God, if they've sat down for dinner and I wasn't there, oh my God, I'd be so nervous. Dinner time is a big thing in a South Asian family. Dinner time is a big thing. And the only person that I know that can really relate to this is my Italian friend, Juliana, because there's a lot of similarities in Italian and South Asian culture when it comes to family and food and she's the only one that can relate to being home for dinner every single night (laughs) gotta be home for dinner so obviously these events would happen and people would essentially go to this huge night out held in the middle of the day dance to bangra and then be home at 6 p.m on the dot and act as if they'd been in the library all day it was such an important part of underground rave culture that we do not know about. Our, okay, not our parents because they were lame, but our parents' friends were going to them. It was a whole generation of young South Asian people in the late 80s, early 90s who were attending these. At their peak, at one event, you'd have 3,000 people pulling up from all over. So we actually managed to track down an OG daytimer who not only went to the events as a youth, but also helped to promote them as well. We're going to call her Subba because she wanted to remain anonymous for this. I'm not sure why, because she comes across as so cool and legendary. I'd be shouting my name from the rooftops, but Subba. So we're going to be hearing from her throughout this episode on her experiences as a daytimer. As Sophia said, you would have 3,000 people at their peak going to a daytime event where there wasn't any alcohol served, which on a Wednesday afternoon, which is a pretty big deal. And in these hubs like Bradford or Manchester, you would have people getting the coach from other northern towns uh, on a Wednesday afternoon because these were massive events. They were packed. I'm talking about you couldn't 
I remember you couldn't move. They were that even. And busloads used to come from other cities to Bradford, like from Manchester and Leeds, and then obviously Bradford, Huddersfield. So there used to be busloads of people that used to come to these Bangladesh. So they started off obviously very small, word of mouth, maybe 100 people over the course of a few years. People were regularly hosting 3,000 capacity events um, week in, week out. And that is a big deal for anyone. I mean, speaking as a failed promoter who couldn't get 500 people in the club on a Friday night hey. and lost a lot of money. Come on. That, yeah, let's not. Yeah. yeah, let's not talk about that. What? No, nah, let's not no, talk no. about that. It's creating your own identity, having parents who had literally fresh off the boat from Pakistan and having very strict parents with very traditional values, and you trying to forge your own way in this new country, obviously having identity crisis on the daily, but creating your own path where you want to respect where you're from, what your parents think and taught you, but also be like, I also just want to have a good time in a club surrounded by other South Asian people. My parents were born in the subcontinent, and we were the first lot to try and experience growing up in the, in the UK. I mean, my kids, they're our kids now. They don't care, they tell us. They want to date, they want to travel. We used to be petrified just to even go to the library on the weekend. We used to have to ask for this one. The common theme was um, we were quite oppressed. We weren't allowed out right, during the night, right, during the evening. So the parents would never know about them. We used to um, go to college in our normal college clothes. And we used to have, um, we used to take our makeup with us and our <laughs> Asian Shavana Kavis with a big quiff hair, <laughs> the loads of lipstick on, <laughs> put our dipatas on and dance around during the day. We'd leave college in our normal clothes, have our bags, and then you'd always leave your bag behind and your coat, and then you'd go into this hall, which is dark, it's always dark, um, with disco lights, um, and then you'd go to the toilet, <laughs> put on the Tacky eyeshadow on, and then just wipe it off. <laughs> oh, you know, the wing and a prayer, just hope that your parents didn't see you with loads of makeup on before you came inside. Yeah, I got to see. And they went from about, about a good four or five hours. Picture the scene you're young, you're South Asian, you're living in the late 80s, you're 18 years old. You turn up to school on a Wednesday, school finishes at lunchtime. What do you do? You tell your parents you're going to the library. Because every Wednesday afternoon, I think it was. We used to have off anyway, so, so one afternoon everybody was off. A huge, huge part of daytime events were how revolutionary they were, created this huge sense of belonging between young South Asian people in the UK. But especially, and if you listen to Subba, our guests talk about them, especially for women, as women coming from really traditional families, there were, you know, these gender norms that people were listening to. Like, I feel it today from our grandparents still. And we, like, we both get these pressures, these very gendered pressures. It would have been even harder back in the 80s and 90s. But for young women to just have an afternoon off, be on a dance floor and just let their hair down and have a good time. I think it was so important. And not only is it so important, but it's just so cool. Yusuf, it's so cool. I wish I would have been too lame to be there, I reckon. I don't think I would have gone. I would have been too scared. Oh, yeah. Just the trendy people like us went. So the geeks didn't go. <laughs> so, yeah. So the in crowd would go because we were like with his heels on and stupid blue eyeshadow. We thought we were it. It was a, it was a rebels, really. And it's, you can't believe what it was like 
So the idea of having boyfriends and girlfriends in those days was taboo. So, so going to clubs and, um, well, it wasn't clubs, it was the band radios, right? We, um, they were allowed, and obviously nightclubs were, were at night time, so we weren't allowed to go to those. There wasn't a lot to do. We didn't have cars. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of fun things to do, so people used to look forward to going to band radios. And then what, what would happen would, would be a group of girls would meet a group of boys. And then they'd meet them again the following month. And it became like, became like a social network. This was our social life. This was our kinship with others. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we had to make our own community. It was about having some element of freedom. And I think that was a big thing, right? It was our way of rebelling without falling out with our parents. So I think, I think it was just uniting us all. Because other than going to college, because we were hardly allowed out, other than going to college, we weren't going to meet people. In that generation, we, re- we really, we needed an identity. We needed, you know, we needed kinship with people. That was our way of meeting people. Now, people just go on social media, they go out, holidays, whatever. None of that was allowed. So it was meeting people from different cities, from different establishments, like different colleges and unis even. You know, in one place and getting to know people. It was our way of socialising. You know, and I think, and I think the Bangladesh symbolise our first step into uh, into some kind of independence and freedom, really. So it wasn't just about going out. It was about doing something that we wanted to do collectively as a group. You know, d- despite the religions or geography, collectively as a group, the one thing that we had in common was that we were rebelling and having fun, which our parents didn't actually want us to have. It was so important. And the thing is, women weren't just taking up space on the dance floor. They were up on the decks too. We'll post this photo on our Instagram, but DJ Radical Sister, there is a iconic photo of her in her Sharal Kameez, in her traditional dress on the DJ decks. And she is the coolest person in the world. And she was in she was an integral person to the whole movement and was involved from the get-go. She invested loads of time, loads of money into it. And she would only wear Punjabi outfits when DJing. When actually most of the girls who would turn up would get changed in the toilets from their shirakamis into Western clothing. But she tutored other DJs. It became a part of her identity. She gave lessons. And then following on from daytimers, she was on pirate radio stations. Um, she was given a slot on Jive FM. Like she was everywhere. And I think this is why daytimers were so great. Like I don't think they were hugely gendered in that way. There were men and women up on the stage. There were men and women on the dance floor. Everyone was just there to have a good time. It's this new identity. We're telling the world, we're not just lame. As an Asian woman, I don't just wear shirakamis and hang out in the kitchen, you know? There's more to me than that. I'm cool too. I'm creating this new space. I'm asserting ownership over my Asian culture, making it my own. I want my children to have fun. I want them to date travel, see the world, all the rest of it. So I can't empathise with my parents, really, because I'm thinking, well, I can to an extent because that was the way they were and that's how everybody were. Um, And I think one of the things to take away from Bangladesh now is is it was the first symbolism of us saying, actually, you know, we, we do have a voice, we do have desires, we do want to mix with others, and we're going to do it behind your back because you won't give us the authority to do it or the freedom to do it openly. So there's always a sense of shame to it, which I hope now is eliminated. I think it's really important 
for your generation to know how difficult we fought or rebelled to give you the freedoms that we, that we were deprived of, really? So the daytimers movement was relatively short-lived. It only lasted about kind of seven years. So it started in the late 80s and kind of phased out in the mid-90s. There's a few reasons for this. The DJ Radical Sister thinks that it was thanks to the daytimers movement, as well as a lot of other things, that UK, British, Asians became more accepted as time went on. They managed to put their stamp on things. I think ultimately the people that were going to daytimers events in the 90s, they kind of grew out of it. The promoters did, the DJs did. They all wanted to kind of enter mainstream music, as we all do. They all had massive dreams of ending up at Asian Network. (laughs) So they kind of grew out of it. And by that point, when the old heads were growing out of it, Asian people were more socially acceptable in society. They were more widely seen. And I guess it was kind of a situation where it was job done. By that point, there was no one that wanted to take on the mantle. Also, our parents, as they spent more time in the UK, they were getting progressive with their kids. So kids being born in 1990 were able to go out to events with their mates and not have to lie about where they were yeah we didn't need a secret wednesday afternoon daytimer event because we were there on a friday night telling our parents where we were no need for a wednesday afternoon mom i'm gonna go down Dakota and absolutely rip it up on the d floor i'll be back tomorrow at some point okay mom i'm going out on a friday night i'll see you on sunday morning bye <laughs> i'm joking i'd never say that i'd never say that <laughs> I think it stopped being a thing because people didn't, because people started going to nightclubs and people didn't really need to hide. And our kids don't need to hide. When they go to shisha bars and nightclubs, they'll, or weekends away, they'll tell us, right, we're off for a few days, see you later. You know? So, so, so it didn't need to happen. It, it filled a need for the community at that time, for the youth of that time, almost as a rite of passage, really, to say, oh, hang on a minute. Um, we can have fun for the world. And we wanted to do things differently. So it, wasn't, so it wasn't just about dancing. It was very much about interacting and having a voice and wanting to make change. Pioneers, it was quite pioneering in a way. We talk a lot about Catholic guilt, but why aren't we talking about Asian guilt enough? 30 years later, it was completely halal. They were revolutionary, exciting, so important. A huge part of history. And the way she talks about how her and her friends still kind of having that guilt and having that taboo attached to it, like they were doing something they weren't supposed to. It is, it's interesting. Oh, you know what's really sad is that even now, 30 years down the line, yeah, it's taboo. That's how oppressed we were. People are still scared to say we went to Bangladesh. Isn't that appalling? Really? We're kind of like depriving our own identity now. We're actually, you know, we're kind of like deleting our history. Why should it be taboo now? You know, it's gone, it's happened, we had fun, nothing bad happened. And that's, and I think the story to tell, part of the story to tell, would be that even now people don't like admitting that they went to Bangladesh. People that have got kids, that have got grandkids, that have grown up, that are professional, that whatever. Even now, we were that oppressed, really, when you think about it, you know, and, and taught to keep secrets. It's almost as if, it were, as if we were committing a sin. And that's really sad. That's a sad part of our generation's history, 
So, but you know what? There's, there's no regrets. It's fun. I've kind of like, we appreciate our freedom as much more. And the other thing as well is, is that if we hadn't, if there weren't things like Bangladesh, we wouldn't have, we might have been, as our kids, we might have not changed our values and our principles to give our kids the freedoms that they enjoy today. Shout out to the daytimers, wherever you are, because you've really created a revolution. And you were home in time for dinner. So Shabash. everyone's a winner. <laughs> <laughs> Mashallah. Okay, so before we sign off, obviously we have to do everyone's favourite bit of the show, which is DFC Island Discs. And unfortunately, you, there's no one here to ask apart from you. So I'm Lauren Laverne and I'm asking you, what is your DC Island disc? Firstly, Lauren, I'd just like to say thank you so much for having me on this landmark show, DC Island Discs. It's a real pinnacle of my career to be here alongside other industry titans in you know, South Asian music and culture. I know that you've previously had on Riz Ahmed. I know that you've previously had on Amita Bachchan, Ari Khan. For you to take interest in me as just a promoter, DJ, radio host podcaster from the southwest is flattering i'm honored i'm humbled thank you the track that i've chosen as my dissy island disc today is really relevant to the daytimers movement it was released in 1991 at the peak of the events it's by bali sagan it's featuring rama and cheshire cat so cheshire cat is a british Ragga MC who's done a lot in kind of UK reggae and jungle and for the keen ears out there it also samples one of my favorite reggae songs Rumours by Gregory Isaacs so it's me it is the perfect representation of what the daytimers were of that era the kind of cross-cultural mishmash that was the 90s the 90s music scene in this country but it's got a South Asian spin on it and I love it so the track is called Mira Langawacha and it's by Bali Sagu featuring Rama and Cheshire Cat. You absolutely bloody smashed that. Loved how relevant it was. Bit like you planned it. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you, babes. I actually did not plan that at all straight off the top of the dome. So thank you. The format of this episode has obviously been a little bit different, but we hope you've enjoyed listening. I think for the next one, we'll probably return to our usual structure by getting on somebody in the music industry, finding out a little bit about what they've done, who they are, where they're going, all that jazz. All that jazz. And you know what? After all that chat about liberating, empowering women, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a woman DJ on next week, please. Well, I'm absolutely cooked. So this was really interesting. <laughs> if you say so yourself. If, <laughs> this was really good. This is really exciting, if I do say so myself. And 
we hope you enjoyed it don't forget to repost us follow us on instagram it's at represent oh wait what is it (laughs) at representation underscore podcast yeah follow us and see you next time bye